So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 11th chapter, verses 21 through 23. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. May the Lord reveal the deep meaning of these words to us this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Our dear Lord, these words are so straightforward, so clear, they almost defy commentary, especially that 23rd verse. But dear Lord, if they did not require commentary, then I think there would be a different look to the church around us. So I pray that as your church, as your people, we will take these words to heart, that we will step back, that we'll use our imaginations this morning, try to get the full picture, to understand what is meant when I say that this is a cosmic initiative and that we are all part of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you've been here, around here for any period of time, you know that I preach quite a bit on the subject of spiritual warfare. And quite often when I'm describing the state, the spiritual state of the world when Jesus came, I'll ask you to imagine one of those meridian maps, you know, the maps that flatten out the globe, not a sphere, but you can see the whole world at one shot. And I, and, and I say, try to imagine that whole map completely covered in darkness with one little bitty tiny prick of light in Palestine. Well, I, wanna, I want you to have sort of the same image this morning, but I, I, I want it to be somewhat different and I'm going to need your imagination. So kind of be attentive right here at the beginning. C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books called the um, Space Trilogy. It was his foray into science fiction, if you will. And the first of those books was called Out of the Silent Planet. That was a great story, again, science fiction, of a man who was kidnapped by two of his compatriots and swept away to Mars where they had all kinds of, of adventures. But it's not the story that that I want to really talk about. I want to talk about Lewis's view of the heavens, the way that he presented them. And again, it's science fiction. It's not biblical. But the way that he presented it and the meaning of the silent planet, and when he says out of the silent planet, is that all of the universe, according to this story, every galaxy, every planet, And even the space between planets was all occupied by a wealth of life that was all praising God all the time. In other words, the heavens were, as Jesus said, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, Lewis just kind of expanded that to be the entire universe. So everywhere you went in the universe, people were in communication with each other. Angels were in communications with each other. There was only one place in the entire universe that had been cut off from everyone else. That was the third planet from the sun in our solar system, Earth. And that was because it was under the domination of an angel that the way he put it was bent. It was evil and was wicked. And he had cloaked this world in darkness, almost like the Iron Curtain was. You can remember when Russia was separated from the rest of the world or China or even as North Korea seems to be today, where there's no communication. Well, that was the situation on Earth. It was the silent planet. Now... With that in mind, I want you to perhaps look at what we're going to see in our text as a cosmic initiative. Even as if you were out in space somewhere near Saturn and and you see Jesus leave his home in heaven and come to that earth to penetrate the darkness, to go in there and start an initiative. And his purpose never was to make peace with the darkness. It was never to make peace with the ruler of this world. It was always to destroy him, to set the captives free, and to return them with him to present to his father. 
That's the cosmic initiative, and I want, you to see it. I want you to see it that way. Let me give it to you in a different way. Let, let's go back to Luke. Now, Luke has been telling us, with no uncertain terms, that the kingdom of heaven has come. In fact, that's that great 20th verse that we ended on the last time I was here. Because he's making the argument, if indeed I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Great news to those that he came to save. No longer will they be slaves to sin. But not only bad news, but a warning, if not a threat, to the agents of evil who hold that world in its clutches. I mean, on the one hand, when, when, we, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven is upon us, in what sense has it come upon us? Well, we know as far as our souls are concerned, the souls of a redeemed, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Good news, the best news that you can have. That's what the gospel is. But to the agents of evil, to the ruler of this world, it's a completely different situation. John 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. In Matthew, Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace to this world. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I did not come to negotiate. I did not come to compromise. I did not come to form an alliance with the darkness. I came to obliterate it. That's the cosmic initiative. And in order to kind of set our minds straight, if I can, I want to get your minds in a groove here. Because I want you to see these simple three verses in the light of what Luke has been bringing out in, in his gospel. So just kind of sit back, relax for a few minutes. I'm going I'm to kind of take you, I'm, I'm going to do what Byron said I don't do. I'm going to give you lots of verses all the way through uh, Luke's gospel to get your mind in that groove. Now I want you to remember, here's the situation. The world is cloaked in darkness. It is shrouded. It is cut off from the rest of creation. It is the only place where God is not worshipped and then the world is at enmity with God. It's into that darkness that Jesus has come. John 1 tells us that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, because Jesus has been sent from God, we know who wins this battle. But here's what I want you to remember. When Jesus comes, he comes both as God in the flesh, as a man. And as that man, 99.999% of the world is in the hand of the devil. That's the situation of the people, the souls in this world. So there's a battle That is going to occur as the light enters the darkness. Because the darkness will always fight back. In order to see this, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the nativity. Now when we talk about the birth of Jesus, usually we get a nice warm fuzzy feeling. We remember Jesus in a stable meant for animals and a little baby that is born. And you know how precious that scene is. And I don't want to take anything away from that. It is a tender and a precious scene. But over here in the field, outside of Bethlehem, a proclamation is about to be made. There is a pronouncement of what has just happened. It is almost as if the, the, the heavens open and a, the beam of the glory and the Shekinah of God comes and lights up the world around a bunch of shepherds. This is what we read. The angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord, the Shekinah of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. The angel said to these shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah of God, and he is the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is what has happened. And it was almost as if in that beam of the Shekinah, the glory of God that came down and permeated the darkness, that the host of heaven came with it. Because then we read that suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Brothers and sisters, the host of heaven is the army of heaven. This is the army, the warriors of Michael's angels who war in the spiritual world against the angels of darkness. 
And the darkness fights back. They have come to this world and now they're, they're covering the landscape. As if to say, your time, Satan, as the ruler of this world, as unchallenged is over. We are here to tell you that the light has entered the darkness. And your days are numbered. Peace that has not existed since Genesis 3.15. Peace that has not existed between God and humanity is about to be established. Because we have brought that peace and that little baby in that manger. He is the one who will secure it and win it and pay for it. And take the captives back with him to present to his father. That's the cosmic initiative, brothers and sisters. The next thing we see is in the desert. Jesus is now a full-grown man. He's beginning his ministry. And he's probably at his weakest point besides being on the cross of his whole life. And that's when the devil decides he's going to attack him. You know those three temptations very well. But it's the second one that I want you to see. Second one that Luke gives us. Matthew gives it third. But this is when the devil comes to Jesus and tries to tempt him with the kingdoms of this world. This is what he says, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all of this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. My goodness, what a pretentious statement that is. For a creature who knows he's a creature to tell his creator, these are mine, and I can give them to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. Now we've talked about that particular temptation. The devil knew that Jesus would not be tempted by the gold and the silver and the jewels and the glitter and the lasciviousness of those kingdoms. That wasn't what Jesus came for. Jesus came to seek and save the lost and those kingdoms are absolutely filled with them. So what Satan is tempting Jesus with is, listen, we can, we can make an alliance. We can make a partnership. You just worship me and together your father cannot stand against us. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus said to that devil is so important. He said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you, shall you serve. In other words, I didn't come to make an alliance with you. I didn't come to negotiate with you. I didn't come to compromise. I came to destroy you. And I will take those souls. They're mine. My Father has given to them to me before the foundations of the world. So in other words, we're seeing the initiative unfold for us. And as the... As, as the story begins to unravel, and I'm sorry for continually going back to this parable, but I just see it is so significant. It's the parable of the sower and the four soils. Jesus maps out the cosmic initiative for us, if you will. Because in that particular parable, a sower goes out to sow in a field. Now, the field is the world. And the sower, initially Jesus, and then the apostles, and after the apostles, the church. And the seed is the gospel. Now here's what I want you to see. Three out of four of the soils will be hostile to the gospel. In reality, it's even more than that. 99% of the souls in this world will be hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the seeds fall on the hardened path, what happens? The demons come and snatch it away. When it falls on the shallow soil, the sun burns it up. When it falls among the thorns, the thorns choke it out with the cares of this world. Most of the soil on earth is going to fight the gospel because they don't want to see the light of Christ. But some of that will fall into the good soil and it will bear fruit. And brothers and sisters, that's the way the kingdom of God is going to grow. Then we had this magnificent illustration of that as Jesus gets into a boat to go to the other side. And he's going to go over there and he's going over for the expressed purpose, it appears, of entering a spooky Gentile graveyard, the absolute picture of defilement and death, which is exactly what he did when he left heaven and came to this world. And he is going to find a man that is completely consumed, indwelt by multiple demons, and he is going to save that man. It is a picture of what his entire purpose is. 
Now, the demons know this. The demons have no question about why Jesus is here. Back in the synagogue of Capernaum, when he confronted a, a demon there, the demon says, Ha, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, when he confronts the demons there in Gerasene, the one who is the spokesperson of all those demons says this, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Later on, when Jesus got ready to throw them out, they once again said, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Even the demons know why Jesus came, not to make an alliance, not to get along, not to invite them into his presence and live side by side with them without any contention. He came to destroy evil. And that's what he spent his time doing. And that's what he passed on to his apostles. You see, the evangelistic effort started out with that same modus operandi, that same kind of a situation because he gave his disciples, I'm sorry, his apostles, the ability to cast out demons and to heal. So they went out and they started doing exactly what Jesus did. Later on, the 72 disciples, even though in the front end he didn't actually say, you're going to cast out demons, that's exactly what happened. Because as they went out, they came back and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So in other words, they came to do exactly the same thing that Jesus did. Just to cast out the evil that is here. And to take the souls that are bound by that evil and free them up so that they can be presented to his father. That's when Jesus looks and he says, I was watching and I was seeing Satan Fall like lightning from heaven. And that's that's an ongoing thing. So what are you saying? I saw soul after soul after soul released from the bondage of the silent planet. Coming into relationship with my father through me. And I am watching as Satan's kingdom begins to unravel. And dear brothers and sisters, that's, that's the focus of what we read this morning. Actually, it brings it up to sort of the closer context as we kind of shift gears. Because the scene before us right now, and if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that what has happened, we've been talking about sanctification. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, Jesus is casting out demons. Almost like it was a normal everyday event, you know, another day, another demon. That's what he's doing. He's casting out a demon. And when he casts out a demon, there are those who are saying, well, I can't deny the supernatural power that he is showing here, but guess what? He must be dealing with the power of Beelzebul, a code word for Satan. It means probably Lord of the dung heap. That is the blasphemous way that they refer to Jesus. And when Jesus responded, he responded with pristine logic. And he said, you know something? If Satan was casting out Satan, that that wouldn't make any sense because a house divided falls. And let me tell you something. The house that you face is anything but divided. It's monolithic. It is on the same page. Evil is so much more united in what they do than the church that now struggles for unity. But he says that's the first thing. Satan does not cast out demons, so therefore it has to be by the power of God. Secondly, he said, if I'm casting out demons by the power of of Satan, then who are your disciples casting them out by? Because actually, whether it's real or perceived, we're both casting out demons by the same power. So if they're casting out by the power of God, why do you say that I'm not? But then he brought those two lines of reasoning together. He said, no one cast out demons but God. The prophets told us that the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one that God would send would come healing the sick and setting the captives free, casting out demons in the power of God. I have come in the power of God, casting out demons and healing. Therefore, I am the Messiah of God. And if I am the Messiah of God, then the finger of God is being used to cast out these demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what does that mean? If you're to be redeemed, it's the greatest news you've ever heard. If you're an agent of evil, it is a warning, if not a threat. 
which is what sets us up for what Jesus is about to say now. So with that, and I realize that's a little bit, a lot of context. We only have three verses to do this morning. So um, it, it, it won't stretch out too long. Let's turn to those verses, starting in the 21st verse. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. So Jesus starts out with sort of a proverb, if you will. It's a, it's a metaphor, but it's a proverbial metaphor, if you will. And, and he talks about a strong man. He doesn't identify who the strong man is or what kind of strong man he is. But we get the impression that he's talking about some kind of a ruling tyrant. And, and, and he is a, a ruling tyrant that holds his dominion, whatever it may be, in absolute, complete power. He, he's the sovereignty within that particular area. Now, he says that that strong man is fully armed. And, and, and what I think he means by that is, is there's, there's no strong man, no dictator, no tyrant who on his own, by himself, can hold a vast number of people under his power. I mean, uh, whether it's hundreds or thousands or millions, uh, he, he needs an organization. He, he, he needs uh, some, some armament. And so therefore, there, there, there are several levels of armament. There, there would be the police, there would be the military, there would be weaponry, there would be all kinds of coercion that would allow the strong man to hold his subjects in his power and in his control. So the fully armed aspect, first of all, talks about the Satan. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He is the strong man, right? But the fully armed aspect, well, one of that group is the demons, the very demons that are the subject of the conversation. Jesus is here casting out demons. These are his number one henchmen. These are the ones that fell from the sky with Satan when he is cast out of heaven. And they, they're, they're particularly active during the time of Jesus. But you see, that's not the extent of the organization of evil that Satan has in place. Because it's not just Satan himself. He can't be everywhere at once. And it's not just the demons. There's a lot of them. But it's the nefarious network of human beings. It's the human agency. Like those who have just accused Jesus of being under the power of Beelzebul. In fact, earlier when Jesus referred to these, he said, You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. And, and, and that's what it means to be fully armed. So when there is a strong man specifically speaking about the devil and the control, the icy grip that he has on this fallen world, when he has the power of his armament, well, his palace is protected. He guards his palace. An image comes to my mind. When I think about this guarding, we were in Africa one time, we saw some lionesses bring down a zebra, and, and, and what that lioness did is sort of put her paw right on the neck of that zebra, and they ate her alive, it was horrible, but nonetheless, they just held it down. Now, what would happen is the jackals and the hyenas would start coming out of the darkness because they wanted a little bit of that, and that lion would stand over its prey with his hand upon its neck, just daring anyone to come take it away from him. That's the picture I see here with the strong man protecting his palace. Well, the palace is the world, folks. It's the silent planet. It's the planet upon which we live and all the souls that are part of it. That is what the devil is protecting. And by the way, that's what he means by the goods. What kind of goods do you think that the strong man, Satan, is willing or, or, or is going to at all costs protect Satan doesn't care about the gold or silver or, or fame or fortune or, or lasciviousness of the kingdoms that he controls. That's how he keeps human beings in control. He is after exactly the same thing that Jesus is after, which is the souls of men and women. Those are the goods that he protects. I want you to see something. Satan doesn't have to run around like a roaring lamb looking for people to devour. He does that to Christians. But the rest of the world he already owns. Okay, He's defensive. He's protecting what he already believes is his. He doesn't have to go hunting for them. We are on the offensive. Do you get that? That's what the cosmic initiative is. Jesus is on the offensive. He's the one that's attacking. 
He's the one that's bringing the light of heaven into this dark world. Satan is on the defensive. And he will ferociously, tenaciously guard that which he thinks is his, which are the souls of men and women. Well, the analogy here continues on as we begin to see his, uh, what, what happens next. Look in the 22nd verse because there's always a, a stronger person or a stronger entity. Look in the 21st verse. I'm sorry, 22nd. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. You've heard the old adage, there's always a bigger fish, you know? Well, basically, that's what Jesus is saying. There's always a a stronger entity. And and if we take that and we put it into the historical um, scenario, I I love the way the book of Daniel approaches this. In Daniel 2, 21, it is God who decides and changes the seasons, raising up kings and and taking them down. And then later on in the fifth chapter of Daniel, he, he begins to show us that process and on to the 7th, 8th, and, and ninth chapters, but where, where he sees where there's a strong man who runs up against someone even stronger. You see, when Nebuchadnezzar was the head of Babylon, it seemed invincible. But by the time of Belshazzar, it had become weak, and a stronger power came, the Medo-Persians, and gobbled up their kingdom. And then those Persians would be gobbled up by Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And the Greeks would be gobbled up by Rome. There's always a stronger entity. And so Jesus is saying that when someone stronger than the strong man comes along, well, that's when things change. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm drilling this into you. I hope you realize that, but I want you to see the language here. The language is significant. Notice, he attacks him. He overcomes him. He takes away his armor. He divides his spoil. This is not the language of reconciliation. This is not the language of peace negotiations. This is the language of conquest. Now let me very quickly say something here, brothers and sisters, because it's almost suggestive of violent conquest. We are not in any way talking about physical conquest. We are not talking about physical. We're not talking about mental. We're not talking about emotional. We're not talking about personalities. We are talking about a battle in the spiritual world. This is a spiritual battle that Jesus is talking about here. And it is absolutely the opposite. We do not go and take the gospel into this world by force. It doesn't work. It's the, it's the movement of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see that in a moment, that happens, that makes all the difference in the world. But this is the language of conquests. Now, let's kind of put the analogy together. We already talked about, we know who the strong man is, it's the devil. We know who his palace is, it's the world. We know what his goods are, it's the souls that he has in check that he has in his hand, the very souls that he flashed before Jesus when he flashed those kingdoms of the world, the stronger one is Jesus. And he has come not to negotiate, but to attack. He has come to destroy, to obliterate, to overwhelm, to overcome, to strip the devil of his armor. What's his armor? What does the devil trust in? What does he hide behind? Lies, tricks, smoke screens, corruption, lasciviousness, murder, hate, everything that he brings upon the fallen heart of humanity to turn them at enmity against God. Those are his armors, his conventions, his power is all wrapped up in the Conventions of evil. What does Jesus do? He comes and he strips the armor. He does the one thing that Satan cannot stand against. He changes the hearts of people. He takes the old soul out, that fallen, wicked, hateful soul, and he replaces it with a new soul worthy of being a receptacle for the Holy Spirit in love with God. And there's nothing that Satan can do about it. He strips him of his armor. Then he plunders his goods. Because, you see, that's not where it stops. 
because there's a sharing of that plunder. There's a sharing of the gift. The gift was given by free, and it, it is shared freely. Great example is that garrison demoniac when Jesus when, uh, heals him and throws the demon out. The man wants to get into the boat and follow Jesus wherever he goes. And Jesus says, nope, I want you to go. And as best as you understand the gospel right now, you start sharing the plunder. <laughs> you are the plunder. You are the gift. You're the treasure. And go tell people what happened to you. Because God has changed your heart. And so the plunder will be shared. The 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 farm, the field becomes sustainable because today's seed is tomorrow's harvest, is tomorrow's sower. That's the way the kingdom of heaven is going to grow. So therefore we have this this beautiful statement. Now, how are we supposed to apply this or how are we supposed to interpret this? Well, on on the one hand, it's very clear. Jesus is throwing out a demon and the people come up to him and say, well, you're throwing it out by the power of Beelzebul. Obviously, you're working hand-in-hand with Satan. And after making that an absurd statement, he goes on to say, far from being in alliance with the devil, far from bending my knee to the strong man, I have come to obliterate him, to destroy him, to take his goods, to strip him of his armor, and to plunder his palace so that I can lead a string of captives right back to heaven and present them to my Father. So that's the first line. But secondly, you you see that's in and of itself. I mean, that's going on. That's a living metaphor, a living parable, because that is what Jesus does with us. That is what he came to do. Now, in a sense, we're all demon-possessed, and I don't want you to take that the wrong way, but we're demon-possessed in the sense that we're all slaves to sin. And, and, and we need to be released. We need to, to be saved. We need a Savior. We can't do it ourselves. And so when Jesus comes, he does what Satan cannot stand against, which is to change my heart and make me in love with God. And so now when I do the work of Satan, I'm mortified. I hate it. I can't stand my sin. How does he stand against that? He can't. Because now there's a power beyond him that lives in me and in you. And so therefore... Jesus sees Satan falling like lightning from the sky. And so then um, I I think that um, thirdly is that cosmic perspective again. If we just kind of step back and we look at it, this is the big plan. And Luke is going to begin to tell us more about the big plan. And some of you, I hope not, but certainly some people will sit there and say, that's a bunch of hooey. That's balderdash. That's ridiculous. Jesus didn't come to wage war. Jesus came to love and to teach us to love. That's what the prevailing belief today, that he went to the cross to show us what true love was. He wasn't a sacrificial atonement for us. That would make God a child abuser. No, he wanted to show us what real love is. It's the universal fatherhood of God. It's the universal brotherhood of man. Jesus is all about love, so don't tell me he came to wage war. Well, if that is your opinion, my dear friend, it is exactly that. Precisely that, your opinion. Because it's not scriptural. That's not what the Bible teaches. And I think I've already given you enough scriptures, but let me give you some more. I've already started this. Let me finish the statement. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. I don't know about you, but that certainly sounds like the language of aggression to me. And that passage that Brother Frank read earlier, out of Isaiah, did you make the connection? Did you notice that that's probably the passage that Jesus is referring to when he makes this statement? Let me reread it for you out of Isaiah 49, one of the servant songs. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? That's the, that's the cosmic initiative. That's what Jesus is about. Well, God answers his own questions. He says, for thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Now, I didn't finish that statement 
for Brother Frank this morning because you might take it out of context. But the people that Jesus is talking to when he makes this would be well aware of how Isaiah continues this. Harsh words. He says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. And they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. That is not the language of reconciliation, folks. That is the language of aggression. Jesus did not come to make peace with the darkness or with evil, to invite it into the churches as quite often it is being done today. He came to destroy it, to drive it out, to to lead the captives back. Well, that brings us to the situation that establishes the background for what he says next. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's the reason I had to put that into its context, folks. You have to see what this initiative and what Jesus is about before you can understand the power of that statement. Jesus is saying there is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. There is a line between good and evil, between light and dark. It is infinitely thin and spiritually defined. There is no gray. That's all on the devil's side. There is a perfect line that the world is divided into exactly two groups. Those who divide the world into two groups and those who don't. That was a joke. Um, But no, Jesus has divided the world into precisely two groups, those who are with him. Now, notice the language that he uses. First of all, he uses the word whoever. That's general. He doesn't want us to associate that with one particular group or another. It is a general statement, and he might as well have said this. Each and every person who has ever lived or who ever will live is either for me or against me. And each and every person who has ever lived or who ever will live, who does not gather with me, scatters. To be with Jesus is to be on the same page with him, to follow him, to be his disciple, to, 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 to live your life as he did, to search his righteousness, to, to be committed, to, to be all in, to be in Christ, as Paul would say. To be against him is the absolute opposite It is to be counter to his purposes. It is not to be going with him in the motion of the movement that he is doing, but it is to stand against him. So therefore, there is absolutely no neutral ground, no middle ground. To not gather is to scatter. It brings in a new nuance there. There, There's the idea of, of obedience that is included in there. If Jesus says it's time to go gather, I don't care if you're doing good stuff. That's a disobedient scattering. Let me see if I can break those down to, for you with a couple of illustrations. Um, I probably should use a military illustration, but uh, I know some of you have been in the military, but not all of you. Um, so rather than using a military illustration, I'm going to use one out of the sports world, team sports. And I think most of you are aware you may not like football, but it's right around the, the, the corner, football season is. And you probably have at least an idea of how they play the game. In the game of football, there are 22 men on the field, 11 on one side and 11 on the other side. There is no moving back and forth between those teams. You may know the person on the other team and like them and go out to dinner with them, but when you are on those field, that field, that person is your enemy. There's no collusion. There's no playing for one team or the other. In professional sports, they would accuse you of throwing a game, and that can be quite serious. So you're either all in one team or all in the other. If you're not, the coach is going to take you out and put someone in who is. Now, in a football game, there are two opposing forces at the same time. There's a positive force and there's a negative force. The positive force we call the offensive team. 
And the offensive team's job is to move the ball down the field to the other goal line and cross it. And whether they run it, whether they pass it, or whether they kick it, whoever crosses that goal line more times than their opponent wins the game. That's the job of the offensive team. But then there is a defensive team, a negative force that stands in their way. And their job is within the rules of the game at all costs to do whatever they can do to stop them from crossing over the goal line. Let me see if I can create a scenario for you. Most important game of the year. Say it's the Super Bowl. Two teams have been battling out all the way through the, the, the game, and now it's come down to the final second of the game. And the offensive team has driven the ball all the way down to the one-inch line, and they are four points behind, meaning a field goal won't do it. They've got to make a touchdown. Okay? Now, when you're, whether you know this or not about football, when you get into that world, pretty much you're in the world of the 300-pounders. There's a lot of meat on that front line on both sides. So you got five 300-something pounders on one side and five on the other side, and they're going to go head-on-head, and whichever is the greater force is going to win that particular battle. Now, I want you to imagine that the five offensive linemen, uh, center, two guards, and two tackles, get together and say, you know something, I think we're just going to set this one out. I'm really tired, man. This has been so aggressive. I mean, so violent, you know. I think I'm just going to find a neutral place to be right now. I'm not going to work for the other team. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to be neutral, right? So they come up to the line of scrimmage, and, 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 and the ball is snapped, and, and those five linemen just kind of sit there. Well, those five or six 300-something pounders just mow them right down. They jump on the quarterback. He fumbles the ball. They take him off the field in a stretcher, and they lose the game. The coach comes running out, screaming off of the, uh, off the sideline. What did you idiots do? Can't you, can't you what, what did you stop? What did you just lay down? And they said, we didn't do anything wrong. We're just being neutral. We're, we just wanted to be middle of the road for once. And coach says, by being neutral, you gave the game away. Now, I could have used maybe a dozen, if not more, team sports with exactly the same message. I could have used a military example, and it would mean the same thing. And everyone here would understand what I was saying. There wouldn't be a person in this sanctuary or listening who wouldn't have comprehended that you can't find a middle neutral ground in a game like that, and yet we do it every day in the kingdom of God. We just want to be neutral. Don't tell me there's a fight going on. I just want to be happy. I just want to feel good. Don't ask me to be convicted. Don't ask me to pick up my cross and follow Jesus daily as he has already said. Don't ask me to commit myself. Don't ask me to tithe. Don't ask me to bring in the offerings to the church. Don't ask me to support the missions. Don't ask me to be concerned about people who don't have Bibles or food or clothes. Don't ask me about that. I'm just neutral. Jesus says there's no neutrality. You're either with him or you're against him. Now, the second of those two analogies is a little bit of a nuance of difference. Added into it is the idea of obedience and the idea that, yeah, it is possible to be doing good things that turn out to be wrong things. I want you to imagine, if you will, that you're a sheep rancher and you've got about a thousand sheep, okay? And it's shearing day. And shearing day was always a big day. It was all exciting, you know. Uh, it was sort of a festival, and there's much to be done. So before you went to sleep that night, you told all your workers, your ranch hands, eight of them, to go and get up early in the morning at first light and start preparing the yard for the shearing festival. That means you've got to clean up the barn. You've got to clean up the yard. You've got to get all the equipment out for a week so we can take care of these sheep. So you wake up in the morning, you look out your window with your cup of coffee, and to your horror, you see that somebody has left the gate to the sheep pen open. All the sheep are gone. And way off in the distance, on the side of a hill, you can see them just aimlessly meandering around. You see, sheep are not the most brilliant of folks. When Jesus says your sheep is not necessarily a compliment. 
they, they, they tend to just meander around and follow nobody in particular. And since they don't have a lot of natural defenses, they tend to run when they're spooked or scattered. So you recognize you're trying to assess the situation, figure out how on earth you're going to get this done, and then to your horror you hear a wolf call from the distance. And then it gets closer, and it gets closer. So you throw on your clothes, you run out, you run right through that that courtyard where all the men are, are fixing up, getting ready for the shearing, and you yell at them, drop whatever you're doing, we need to go gather. Two of them... Listen to what you say. They drop what they're doing. They follow right behind you. The other six say, boss, we'll be with you in a minute. I've got to finish mucking out the stables. You, you told us that we need to do all these good things. You told us to get ready for the sharing. So I'm going to continue doing what you told me to do. I'm going to ignore your current call, and I'm going to finish it, and I'll be right behind you. You know what happens, don't you? Three men are not going to be able to gather all those sheep. That's why Jesus says, pray to the Lord of harvest that he will send out workers into his field. They can't gather it. The wolf pack falls upon them and the sheep scatter. And you come back to that barnyard where those other six are and they meet you and say, hey, boss, great. We got all things set up. Where where are the sheep? They scattered. Because you didn't gather with me. You scattered. Because you, you didn't obey me. You didn't listen to what I said. You, you wanted to comment on it. You wanted to do it your way. You wanted to add to it. When I told you to gather, you said, not now. I'm going to do other good things. Brothers and sisters, I mean, these are powerful, powerful statements that the church needs to hear. I, I mean, on multiple levels. First off, to the detractors that Jesus has just heard from that you're working in the power of the devil. He says, not only am I not working under the power of the devil, I'm here to destroy the devil. And guess what? You are either with me or you're against me. And, and, and what does that mean in a modern sense? I'm going to make a lot of people mad right now. You are either following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or you're following Satan, the power of evil. And you say, wait a minute, don't you dare accuse me of evil. I'm a good person. I do all kinds of good things. How can you possibly say that I am evil if I'm not following your particular religion? Well, I didn't say it, my friend. Jesus did. He said, if you're not with me, you're against me. In other words, if you're not following me, I am leading the captives back to present them to my Father. And if you're not part of that train, then you are going to go where Satan and his angels go, which is the lake of fire we read in Revelation. Now that is a fact. That's that's a warning. That's a threat to those who are going to stay with the power of evil and think that you're going to overwhelm it. You will not. You will face your judge, and you will end up where the one you follow is. So the invitation to anyone who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Lord is to think it through. Think it through. Did you really think that this universe created itself? Come on now. Do you really think there is no God? And did you really think that God would not present himself in some way to you? If he was going to hold you accountable for your sins, don't you think that he would present a Savior? That Savior is Jesus Christ the Lord. And it is presented to you right now. You have heard the gospel and you can accept it. But if you reject it, you have made your choice. So don't blame God when you stand before him in judgment. He's also talking to his disciples. He's talking to us, and he's saying, pick up your cross. Whoever would follow after me, pick up your cross, deny yourself daily, and follow me. In other words, I need committed, sanctified, battle-ready disciples. And I need those who are going to be with me and be part of this cosmic initiative. This cosmic initiative that... Will, 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 will bring the good news of Christ into the darkness. And we know what the darkness is going to say. John has told us beyond any doubt, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So in other words, what Jesus wants out of us, brothers and sisters, are disciples who understand that we are in a spiritual war. You can bury your head in the sand, but what Jesus says to you is, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you don't gather with me, you scatter. I don't know how much clearer it can get than that. Third thing that he tells us is you can be doing good things that turn out to be evil if you're not doing what Jesus tells you to do. There are so many good things we can do in the church, folks. I mean, it's really nice to have this pretty building to to meet in. It's really nice to have a school that we can prepare children for the world out there. But if we're not gathering, if we're not part of the evangelistic outreach, if we are not standing against the darts of the devil and against Satan and against his position in this world, if we are not sharing the light of Jesus Christ, then why are we here? We're a social club with no reason for existence. We're spending most of our money on ourselves. 95% of the churches of this country spend, I'm sorry, I was going to tell that wrong. The churches of this country spend 95% of their income on themselves. And only 5% left over for world missions, for evangelism and outreach. What are we doing if we are not gathering or scattering? And finally, and I'll leave you with this. I believe that one of the reasons that Jesus is doing this is he wants to develop a kingdom core. He wants, from the very beginning, Jesus always dealt with small numbers. He never went for the big numbers. Just, just, just 11 men, okay? Just a very small group of people. Just, just like a, a, a little bit of leaven in a yeast of dough. That's the way the kingdom of heaven is going to grow. And he would rather have a small, sanctified, battle-ready group of dedicated brothers and sisters than the biggest church on earth that is teaching another gospel. So brothers and sisters, I think one of the reasons that he says this to us is so that we will unify around him. I said this last week. Unity is not just to get along with each other, to compromise. Unity means to gather around Christ, to be with Him, to travel with Him, to have the same objective that He has, to be His disciples, lock, stock, and barrel. If you do, then this is the greatest news you've ever heard. If you don't, then just consider in your own heart and mind what Jesus just said about you and your alliance. You think about that. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, I know these are hard-hitting words, but this is a hard-hitting passage. This is not, as many people would have it say, something that we're just going to run over and talk about it in a, in, in a context that it doesn't have any bearing on me or your church well I think it does and Lord forgive my my brashness or my inability to present these words I think in the way that you would prefer them to be presented but I just pray that they have been filtered in the hearts and the minds of those who hear it so that we as your church are all with you that we as your church gather In Christ's name we pray, amen.